Greetings, Learn to Love listeners. I wanted to remind you all of our upcoming Mindful Self-Compassion program starting January 5th, 2022 with the incredible Megan Prager of Mindful Labs. The practice of mindful self-compassion is a beautiful way to bring more love and compassion into your own life through the practices of mindfulness, kindness, and a recognition of our common humanity. Developed by the amazing compassion researchers, Dr. Kristen Neff and Dr. Christopher Germer, the eight-week mindful self-compassion program will help you better love yourself and build emotional and mental resiliency. We hope you can join us. Feel free to sign up at theheartcenter.com. That's the-heart-center.com. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist, Dr. Holly Richmond. Hello, Holly, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too, because today we're going to be talking about reclaiming pleasure. And for those that don't know, Dr. Holly Richmond is a somatic psychotherapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, and certified sex therapist. This unique and incredible combination of credentials enables her to focus on both body and mind. Dr. Richmond is a sought-after consultant in the sex tech industry. She is regularly quoted in publications and media outlets, including the New York Times, CNN, Shape, NBC, Wired, Forbes, Oprah, Men's Health, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Health. Her newly released book, Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life, is an innovative look at both somatic and psychological factors in survivors' erotic recovery and the topic of today's show. How are you today, Holly? I'm really good. I'm good. Um, Again, happy to be here. So before we talk about reclaiming pleasure... I'd love to just talk about claiming pleasure in the first place because you write about the importance of cultivating eros and the power of eroticism in our li- in our lives. And I think this is such an important distinction and something more people need to understand better. So what does it mean to bring eros into our lives? It's a question I love to talk about. So thank you for asking. Most people associate the word eroticism or eros with sexuality, and it absolutely can be that, but it doesn't have to be that. And actually the word, the root of the word is not about sex. It's just about vitality, life force, vivacity, that process of wanting, eros, eros, eroticism, however you like to say it, this big E-R-O-S is really about cultivating a full dynamic life with, it's more than just happiness. It's that vitality, vitalness that so many of us are looking for. I love that. So 
I want more life force, vivacity. <laughs> I love that word too, yeah. vivacity. And I want more of that in my life. So how do I go about doing that? Okay. So we can, I really, with with my, the clients that I work with, I look at this in several different channels. So of course there's the sexual piece. And I know you and I are getting to that a little bit um, in, a, in a few minutes, a little uh, farther down in the segment, but really looking at life, the friendships we have, the work that we're doing, the places we live. And I know for many of us, a lot of those aren't ideal and it's not about creating perfection, but it's really about creating a life that feels better to us. I feel like in our society, we're taught, you know, or asked, oh, well, what do you want your life to look like? And I honestly feel like that's not the right question. It's more of what do I want my life to feel like? So it's not really a matter of money for a lot of us. It's just a quality of balance, being able to pursue the things that are meaningful to me, having time and space to take care of myself. I love that distinction, shifting from what do I want my life to look like to what do I want my life to feel like? And I love it because I feel like it really emphasizes that shift from the mind to the body. And I feel like we live in a very cognitive centric world and we're just not in our bodies enough. And you yourself are a somatic psychotherapist. And I'm kind of curious, what type of approaches might a somatic psychologist um, bring to the therapy office or to the research that is a little bit different from general psychotherapy? So where do I want to start with that? So essentially big picture, I pay as much attention to what my clients are saying to me as to what they are showing me. So I'm looking at body language physical manifestations of trauma, anxiety, depression. So maybe there's chronic pain. I work a lot with substance abuse issues, eating disorders, any of these strange um, maladies that, you know, my clients will go to the doctors for years and years and the doctors will say, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, obviously there is something wrong. We just have to look at, is it psychogenic? So is it coming from the psyche or is it organic? Is it really coming from physiology? And a lot of times it's both, but um, I just, I could never really wrap my head around just doing talk therapy without having the body involved, especially if we're talking about sexuality. There's really nothing more somatic than sex. So for me, it just made sense to study it. And I'm a somaticizer. Um, we can talk a little bit about that if, if you're curious. Well, I love this idea of getting the body involved. And this is one of my favorite teachings. It's something I often say in my workshops too, that the issues are in the tissues. <laughs> and a lot of people are getting more into like Besser van der Kolk's work on how the body keeps the score. And I'm curious how you do that. Like when you say we want to get the body involved in the healing and growth process, particularly when it comes to therapy. So does that look like breathing exercise? Does it look like doing Tai Chi in the office? How do we bring this embodied sensory experience into our path of healing? This is so client specific. So yes, to both of those examples, it can be. But more often, it looks like me giving homework that lives outside of the office, so outside of our sessions. So so my job, if you were to look in on a session, it's really, it looks like a talk therapy session. And it is, except that I'm attuning to my client's nervous system the whole time. I mean, I'm really like, what's happening for your nervous system right now? And again, body, body language is incredibly important, even where they're looking, 
how that's playing out, how attuned we feel to each other in those moments. So the homework would be generally movement-based. When we're talking about sexuality, it would be a self-pleasure protocol. But again, this is highly unique to each person. So let's say they have an eating disorder. We would work with the body and with food at different periods over, let's say, a 10 or 12-week course, just so that they, they're feeling more in control, more solid, less anxious, If especially if we're, we're looking at the nervous system on a scale of one to 10. One is almost catatonic, severely depressed. 10 is full on panic attack. So helping clients, okay, where am I now and where do I want to be? So in that scale that you just gave, are we trying to be at the five in the middle <laughs> or just like off the scale? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And five doesn't work for a lot of us. I'm not a five. I feel better at a four because anything even a little bit anxious to me doesn't feel good. And that's where I go naturally. So my work has been, you know, to bring it back that, that normal of a five, it's okay. But I, I honestly even feel a little bit better under that where my partner, for example, like he naturally like settles at a 6.5, he would feel depressed out of four. So it's, again, it's attuning to ourselves, learning our nervous system. You know, so often with people who have experienced trauma, we, uh, we confuse excitement with danger. So it's just starting to regulate those cues or we confuse security with boredom. So starting to regulate those cues from the inside out. I want to ask you a little bit more about what you mentioned earlier around how you as the therapist attune to the other person's nervous system, because I'm curious how you do that without also kind of picking up or absorbing these experiences like within yourself and how you take care of yourself. How do you, I want to use the term like protection, like how do you protect yourself from also not getting down into the dumps because you're really just fully empathizing with somebody else who's in a challenging experience? This has been a process and it is a practice on a daily level. When I tell people that I, you know, I work mostly with survivors of sexual trauma or with couples who are struggling, um, most people say, oh my gosh, that work must be so hard. And it is hard, but the, the kind of the flip that I've given to it, or I can literally feel in my bones now is it's more hopeful than it is hard. So I... When I started, I started at a rape crisis center and please know I would bring this home. And I was in those spaces that you just mentioned. So it really is through self-care, recognizing what's mine and what I can help with and support, really not feeling like it's my job to fix anything, which for a new therapist, you know, I think most of us fall into that trap. Oh, I have to fix this. I have to make it better. That's not my job. My job is to help clients know themselves better than I can know them, um, having the insight, the tools to really help themselves. So from the somatic perspective, I used to be overly empathetic. And one of my therapists way back then said, Holly, you're like Swiss cheese. You're just full of holes. You take everything in. And I felt that very, very deeply. Another one of my mentors reframed that several years later. And he said, Holly, you're not full of holes. You just have more eyes to see with. And Zach, like that literally, like that changed everything because I didn't feel like I had to take in the pain that I could see it. I could recognize it. I could empathize with it, but it didn't have to come in. It could stay here just, you know, just on the level of me seeing and experiencing with the person, but not taking it into my whole being. 
I love that. You're not full of holes. You just have more eyes to see with. That is a really beautiful perspective. And earlier you mentioned, it's interesting like how clinical it sounds, this self-pleasure protocol. <laughs> and so I want to go into that on this kind of like homework you kind of offer your clients because when we think about Again, just this idea of claiming pleasure in the first place. I was thinking about how quite a few episodes ago, we had a lovely guest who focused her work on the world and helping people recover from puritanical Christianity. And, you know, sex negativity can come from us in a, from a variety of different directions, from our parents, from our education. Now, I was thinking about this when I was reading an article on your own website, and it was entitled 32 Best Masturbation Tips for Touching Yourself and Loving Every Second of It. And I thought about people who just have same, who have some shame around self-pleasure. So for, you know, these folks who don't even feel comfortable or even feel guilty if they give pleasure to themselves, how can we shift our view to look at sex in a more gratifying and potentially empowering way? I think we aren't set up well for that in our culture and in society. So I'm really glad that you asked. Um, what I like to do is, again, this full body perspective. So it's not just all about the genitals. And in that way, we can separate it from the shame because it becomes more about pleasure. So I'll often use the five senses and we're looking at both desire and arousal. So desire is the psychological process of wanting arousal is the physiological process of wanting. I think, especially if we're talking about desire, which is where eros and eroticism come in, that can be a really great place to start because it's not as shame inducing. And my clients can get used to the idea of pleasure and wanting before we go to the arousal or the typically more body-based or genitally based practices. I love that. And I think that's just really awesome advice for anybody's sex life. You know, a lot of people, when they think of sexuality, they think of simply the actions of the genitals. But first off, bringing in what you just said, bringing in all five senses, right, into the bedroom, which we can absolutely do. And then also balancing not just the physiological experience, but the psychological arousal, desire, passion part of it is so important too. It is. And I think sex far too often is boiled down to, you know, an experience of body parts. And, and to me, that just, it entirely misses the point. So let's talk about more of your work in the world, which has largely focused on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault. This includes your dissertation to your work with thousands of individuals throughout your career. And I'm curious, is there a process or a framework? I know earlier you mentioned how it's unique to each and every individual, but I'm thinking about the five stages of grief, for example. We are healing and overcoming the trauma from sexual assault. Is there a process that you guide people through or is it all simply case by case? No, there's absolutely a process. So I'll take you back just a little bit. So the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault was my dissertation. Um, and I based that on my work at a rape crisis center. The book, Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex Positive Guide for Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life is really the translation of that into all kinds of sexual trauma. So not just sexual assault, but childhood sexual abuse, sexual harassment, really every gender harassment, gender violence, everything that's under the, the umbrella of sexual trauma, neglect, 
So within the dissertation, I discovered in a grounded theory approach, these three parameters that are really, to, to me, um, set a survivor up to heal in the most contained, wholehearted, inquisitive way. So they're understanding themselves. So I can, I can go into those if, if that sounds good to you. Absolutely. Okay. So the first is control. The first parameter is control. And that probably sounds self-evident. Of course, anyone who has experienced sexual trauma, they are going to want to be in control of who they're with, what experience they're having, where they are, all of those things. That's true. Of course, consent, control, those are first top tier parameters. But the flip side of this is relinquishing control. So to say that more clearly, there's maintaining control and there's relinquishing control. And to be honest, Zach, like that relinquishing control is where most survivors need the work, right? That's the risky part. So many survivors have control, you know, they've got that dialed in. They're they're almost rigid. So we've got rigidity, flexibility in the center, and then laxity on the other side. Most survivors are in that rigid state. And I know for sure that rigidity and hyper control is not a way to experience great sex. So what I have to do is really work on, okay, I understand that you need to be in control and you are. So confirming for them that they are in control, but also helping them, giving them tools where they can relinquish control so they can really sink into the second parameter, which is pleasure. And this, I mean, this too, experiencing pleasure during sex, when I say it out loud, I'm like, duh, self-evident. It is amazing, especially in our culture, how many people, women in spe- women particularly, never got the message that they, that sex was supposed to be good, that they were supposed to enjoy it. It's just, oh, just please your partner. So the first parameter is control, and the second one is pleasure. And right. what's the third one? Connection. And this is this is the big one. I wish we could heal in in solitude. I wish we could be completely autonomous in this healing process, but I know for sure that it takes this element of connection. It takes vulnerability. It takes empathy, um, but really learning to feel safe in the presence of another while being our truest version of ourselves. So again, control, which is maintaining and relinquishing pleasure, which contains what we were talking about a few minutes ago with helping people understand their sexual template of desire and arousal, um, building a self-pleasure protocol, which includes masturbation. And then that third piece, connection, really being in partnership with yourself, but with other people as well. Let's talk about that partnership aspect, because I think that comes up for a lot of survivors of sexual assault is when they're first dating and they're like, how do I bring this up? How do I approach it? How do I express my hesitancy? Because they might be going out with people who are used to hooking up like on the first day and used to just, you know, having quick and intimate connections with people. And somebody else might need multiple rendezvous and multiple times to meet to really feel safe enough to be intimate with somebody. So how do we enter the dating scene and when do we bring up and how do we bring up these conversations? Again, this is going to be case specific, but I do have a few things that I'd like to offer. So first is the sex positive kind of paradigm that I work from. So it's this all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. So there should be no sex happening ever, ever without first 
consent. So it's something that you really want to do. And the second is pleasure. So for for survivors, to your point, many are not comfortable having hookup sex, sex on the first date. So to do so would be would not be consensual, right? So it's really stepping into your own self-awareness, your own empowerment about the time and space you need to be able to step into an intimate space with someone. As far as telling them, I think what you need to express is that you need time. And I wouldn't even ask for patience because it's not, it's just, you need time and you will let them know when you are ready to enter into that space with them. You never have to share any details about your sexual trauma. So if you're comfortable with it, you could say, I'm a survivor. Sometimes, you know, what might take a lot of people, a few dates could take me, you know, several dozen dates. You don't even have to say that. You could just say, I need to take things slow and that's enough. But I do know for sure you never have to share details of your sexual trauma until you are ready. For some survivors, this is incredibly healing to share. For others, um, it's it's just far too vulnerable. So we've talked a little bit about you know how many things manifest physiologically in the body. And I'm curious about what are some of the most common emotional, physical, sexual, and even relational symptoms of sexual trauma that often go overlooked? Because I'm also thinking about, you know, when this person has this conversation with a potential partner, that potential partner might not know anything about it, these things. Absolutely. And this is, again, where the somatic piece comes back because we're really paying attention, not just to the body, but how the trauma manifests outside of the sexual trauma. So the common emotional impacts of sexual trauma include um, difficulty identifying emotions, expressing emotions, regulating emotions, um, often feeling out of control or disorganized, rumination low self-esteem and lack of boundaries. I can, I can leave it there. There's many, many more, but those are kind of the, some of the top tier ones. When we're talking about the physical impacts, those would be for sure eating disorders. So I rarely meet a survivor of sexual trauma who does not have some issues with uh, body image, eating, or exercise. So this could be restriction or compulsivity on the other side. Uh, Substance abuse, substance dependence, self-harm, lack of coordination or balance, insomnia, nightmares, tremors, uncontrollable shaking, and high startle response. When we're talking about the common sexual repercussions after sexual trauma, um, pain during sex is uh, is one that I see really, really often, particularly in women or people with vulvas and vaginas. Again, compulsivity with sex or pornography, uh, frequent urinary tract infections, low desire, feeling asexual. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've met survivors who say, I don't care if I ever have sex again. I think I'm asexual. And I absolutely support uh, people who identify as asexual. And that's a very small percentage of the population. Typically, that's just a response to fear and part of how the sexual trauma spectrum unfolds. So avoiding sex or using sex for power and control. Wow. It's yeah. quite the list. <laughs> it is. 
And I just want to say uh, one more. So the relational, so we've got the emotional, physical, sexual, and the relational. The relational is insecure attachment style or anxious attachment. So this could be someone who is who feels particularly needy, needs a lot of validation to feel safe in the relationship. The counter side to that is an avoidant attachment style. style. So someone who really has a lot of walls up, but does want to be in the relationship erratic swings in the relationship. So they're either super close or they're fighting all the time. You know, it goes back and forth, codependence, feeling misunderstood and secret keeping. Wow. That's a really yeah. challenging picture here. <laughs> so you listed kind of all the symptoms, but I'm curious, would one person have half of these, like exhibit a majority of them? It's a great question. I would say most people have one or two from each of those four categories. So again, emotional, physical, sexual, or relational. Most people, gosh, that would be horrible if they had all of them. No, no. And this, and I only gave you like five or six off each list, but the lists I have in the book, uh, there's about 20 per page for that. Um, and that's not exhaustive either. So I'm going to ask a very naive question along the lines of like, why? is the human response this way? I would hope our psychology is just like more resilient to negative events in our life. And it very much seems it's one thing that happens to us. And rather than the next day, we forget about it. And I don't want to like delegitimize the challenging experience, but I would hope that like human beings are more resilient. And like what is happening in the brain, in the body that turns this singular, and it could be multiple events too, if it was something like in childhood or something, but you know, this event happened in our life and then it manifests in all those things you just described. There are so many factors here, but you're absolutely right. I have a client who experienced a trauma that I would consider absolutely horrific and they're doing pretty well and they don't attach as much meaning to it or harm as I would. And then I'll have another client who, from my perspective, wow, that was seemingly, you know, that, that didn't seem like a huge deal, but because of their life experience and how little nurturing and support and um, core sense of self, how little they got, once that small trauma happened, the whole system came crumbling down. I loved that word resiliency that you used. That's key. And if if we have the structure underneath us, sometimes the trauma can be moved through a little bit more quickly with less manifestations that we just talked about. Um, if there's nothing holding us up, then uh, again, a lot of these symptoms will appear. So is there a big difference? I mean, between the person that you, you mentioned, like something terrible happened and they were able to recover from it relatively quickly versus those that do have like the lasting impact. Like, is there a perspective, idea, like capacity potentially for something like mindfulness that allows us to recover from negative events in our life uh, more quickly and also just bringing more health and wellness into our life. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is this is interesting too, when we're talking about, let's say rape-related PTSD compared to complex PTSD. So we really do need to look at these micro traumas and have these traumas been happening for 30 years or was there one trauma that happened one night? So again, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm not saying one is worse than the other. It's just the meaning that each survivor gives and how resilient their system is, um, how solid they feel in themselves. And a lot of times it is mindfulness 
more specifically to the work I do and a mantra that I use daily is that was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. And as tiny as that seems, so often when we're in these trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, we're living as if we're in the past, right? So it would be, I'm sitting at my desk right now chatting with you, and I know I'm very safe, but inside my nervous system feels like I'm running from a perpetrator or I'm being chased by a bear. So my work in this trauma field is, again, separating the past from the present and helping people be in the present moment, which comes back to right where you started, which is mindfulness. It's just a fancy way to talk about mindfulness. So I'd love to get a little bit more into how we can break out of the self-blame and the self-shame that often comes with many kinds of trauma and particularly sexual trauma, because this is a really interesting but also heartbreaking thing that comes up for survivors of abuse. And even in attachment theory, they, they talk about how young children who experience bad parenting, like neglect, they don't think, what is wrong with my parents? Like, why aren't they just being good parents and taking care of me? The psychology is they think, well, what is wrong with me? Like, why don't my parents love me? So too, even in society, we have like the all too common, what were you wearing? And why did you walk home alone? And well, how many drinks did you have that can so often happen after these events? So how can we shift to a better perspective? This has been undone, I feel like a day at a time. Uh, We live in a culture that has pathologized and blamed survivors from the beginning. And I think you know, starting with the Me Too movement in 2017, we're starting to chip away at this a little bit. Something I'll often tell my clients, um, because you're right, the example you gave, children will think it's about them, not about their parents. With sexual trauma, the shame, it goes so quick and so deep because it is attached to our sexuality. So sexual trauma doesn't just happen to us, but it happens in our body. And and for me, I believe that just it embeds it a little bit more deeply. So again, the shame is not that um, I did something wrong, which a survivor hasn't, but it's that I am something wrong. And because we don't talk openly about sex in our society, so few of us have those tools. We just, we haven't been given them. That shame and that secrecy, which go hand in hand, the secrecy, prevent us from ever saying anything. So we hold on to it and our bodies hold on to it. So for those survivors, when you talk about how important it is to talk to others, you know, do you recommend friends, family, therapists? How do we talk about things more openly? This again is a personal choice. And obviously I'll present a number of avenues to to the people I work with for, I, you know, I'm going to say a therapist is, almost always a safe choice as long as they work from a sex positive perspective, because the worst thing that could possibly happen is for a survivor to walk into someone's office who didn't have that and who blamed and shamed. Um, I'm sure not not maliciously, um, it would be subconsciously, but just to reinforce, oh, wow, you made a bad decision saying something like, wow, why did you drink so much? Right? When we know no one rapes themselves. So the fault is always on the perpetrator. I'll say to my clients a lot, I don't care if you were sitting on the street corner naked. Most people would have brought you a coat. The only reason you were raped is because a rapist walked by. 
there is just, there's no reason anyone gets raped except because there was a perpetrator present. So again, it's really placing that blame where it belongs. I, it, it doesn't matter how much you drank, what you had on, where you were, what time of day it was. So finding a therapist is usually a safe bet. Finding a sex therapist is going to be a very safe bet. Um, talking to friends can often be great as long as they have some kind of understanding about sexual trauma. Maybe family, that would be the next tier. Joining a support group at a local uh, crisis center is often really, really great. So group therapy can just be incredibly healing for survivors. Some survivors write books and go public. Some survivors do podcasts. Some survivors talk at their local high school. Whatever feels good to you, as private as it may be or, or as public as it may be, there's no wrong way to, to heal as far as talking goes. I'm even thinking just how journaling is also one way of communicating while also not necessarily needing to share vulnerable things with other people. Absolutely. So another question I have that's kind of coming up listening to you is if and how the path of recovery is different depending on gender. When I was thinking about you mentioning the second parameter of overcoming these things, you mentioned pleasure and how many women in particular never got the message that sex was supposed to be good. But the the male side is also, you know, like, well, why didn't you fight back? Or like some people don't believe that men experience this as much. When we think of sexual assault, I think the idea goes to women because they are in the majority. But What's the statistics and like the the gender disparity between sexual trauma and is the path of recovery different depending on the gender? Let me answer that second question first. No, the path of recovery generally isn't very different, but let's say instead of working with pain during sex, I'm working with erectile function issues, which is, I don't think I said that in the physical manifestations, but that is that is a huge one. So the statistics, one in every four women experience sexual trauma in their lifetime, one in every nine men, and a disproportionately higher percentage of non-binary or transgendered identified people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> and it's, it's not as few men as, as I think most people would think. Um, it happens to men all the time, all the time. It's just men don't, don't often come forward and share quite as readily as women. Um, and it, it certainly happens to women more, but I don't ever want to minimize how much it's happening to men and boys. And when we do talk about reclaiming that pleasure, say for a male that has erectile issues, like it's going to be hard to be intimate with somebody if you do believe that like sex simply revolves around the genitals. And I'm almost imagining exposure therapy when somebody's like afraid of a spider you're like okay think of the spider okay here's a picture of the spider <laughs> and so like what are some of those baby steps that we could take to get comfortable in our bodies comfortable with somebody else's body that puts us on the path to where we want to be so we're back to that pleasure protocol or another way that I will describe this. It's sensate focus. So developed way back when by Masters and Johnson compared with a little um, combined with a little bit of Tantra. So the translation of Tantra is the weave. So what I do for my clients in this position, whether it's with themselves or with a partner, it's combining this mindfulness, this weave 
eroticism with a really slow, titrated, stepping up process of pleasure that's moving towards the genitals or whatever the top tier sexual experience is. So whether that's penis and vagina, whether it's anal sex, whether it's oral sex, whether it never includes any genital penetration, touch, whatsoever. So so where does that client want to go? What would be their top tier erotic or sexual experience and really designing a program from there? I want to combine that a little bit because earlier, and I love what you said, that all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. So how do we combine this idea with what you mentioned about thinking about your top tier erotic sexual experience, because I do think people often have very unrealistic expectations around what good sex is or what it means to have a good sex life. You know, they expect to last hours and be acrobats like in the bedroom. And a lot of this is also influenced by what we see in porn and the unrealistic fantasies that, that people see there and which is often their only kind of exposure to sexuality in our in our culture. So how do we balance more realistic expectations? Oh, that's a big question. So first, if you can solve this, Zach, and be very happy, um, can you redo the sex education system in America? Can you just start there? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm asking that much. <laughs> Uh, but that's it. I mean, we, we know from the research that the kids are nine to 11 years old the first time they see porn. And I am pro porn, um, pro enjoying it with consent, certainly not pro kids watching porn, but if adults want to watch porn, I'm fine with that. As long as you know that it's entertainment and not education, there's nothing educationally based about porn. You're literally just watching a movie with naked people. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's it. So it's it's reframing. And again, by going really slowly with the five senses, what does sex mean to you? What is this erotic experience? How do you want it to manifest? What do you want it to be, feel like, smell like, look like? Because it might not have anything to do with your penis or it might. So, you know, it could be really sensual and not have anything to do with the genitals, or it could be completely BDSM, rough sex, and have everything to do with the genitals. It's all fine as long as consent and pleasure, those two boxes are checked. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Holly Richmond, for coming on to the show. And before we finish, I do have to ask you the question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? It's such a good question, Zach. Like I, I, I love this question. So my answer is, I wish, I wish everyone knew about love that it's hard. And what I mean by that is love more than anything else we ever do in our lives takes an incredible amount of risk and vulnerability. And it's not easy. Uh, we can't do it alone. So the the trope, you know, you have to love yourself before you can learn to love everyone else. I completely disagree with. Many of us aren't born loving ourselves because we weren't given those tools. And it's only through the reflection of others that we can learn to feel loved and then love in really authentic ways. So it's this experience of reciprocity that only happens in vulnerability. It's the scariest thing we can do and you can do it. Um, I just feel like from rom-coms, we're sold that it's you know supposed to be easy and natural and it's all about chemistry and it's just not that way. Oh, I love your mantras so much. It's the scariest thing we can do 
and you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Richmond, for coming on. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm on social media at Dr. Holly Richmond. So it's at D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. My website is drhollyrichmond.com and you can find links to the book and podcasts and articles, everything there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom. And I also just really want to applaud you for this amazing and necessary work that you're doing in the world and really helping people feel joy and pleasure and comfort in their bodies again. And if any of the things we talked about resonated with you listeners, I highly recommend checking out Dr. Richmond's new book, Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. And in that book, you will discover the three parameters that set up the survivor to heal, including control and the relinquishment of control, pleasure, and connection. And remember, all sex is good sex as long as it is consensual and pleasurable. And you might apply a few mantras such as, that was then, this is now. And it's the scariest thing we can do and you can do it. And this applies both to the path of healing and growth and also, of course, to this amazing and powerful force called love. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Holly. Thank you, Zach. Again, what a wonderful hour this was with you. Thank you again. Huge appreciation for having me on. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.